Welcome to Teach Musically, the Studio Music Teacher's Guide to Business and Pedagogy Resources. My name is Michelle. And I'm Leanne. Today's podcast is all about how to best prepare your students for their RCM exams. Exams are an important achievement to many parents and students. For those clients with not much musical background, it is a way to gauge their child's progress and a marker of their achievement. If you are a teacher, especially in Canada, you will want to be familiar with the exam system so that you know how to best prepare your students. As seasoned musicians, we know that the mark your students achieve are not necessarily an indication of your skill as a teacher or a musician. Nonetheless, having students successfully complete exams is a valuable way in which you can heighten your reputation and become a more desirable teacher. Today, we'll be going through each element of the RCM exam and discuss how you can prepare your students to the best of their abilities. You'll also hear from Leanne, an RCM examiner, about some of the things she sees in the exam room that teachers are overlooking. Let's dive in with repertoire, the bulk of the exam. When it comes to repertoire, I think it is so important to choose the right piece for each student. This is a piece that inspires them and complements their strengths. As I mentioned in last week's podcast, Our approach as teachers should not be to select three pieces for our students and work on those for six months, polishing every last detail. This does not serve to make our students well-rounded musicians. Rather, I think it's good to study a number of pieces from each list. They do not necessarily have to be polished or totally fluent. Then, once the student is showing signs of being ready to do their exam, we choose their most favorite pieces and then begin to polish. The exploration of many pieces is valuable since it exposes students to a variety of music. It is also a healthy approach to the musical journey, showing them that not every piece needs to be absolutely perfect in order to be worth learning. Ultimately, your goal as a teacher is to find pieces that can inspire your students, not just choosing the easiest ones. In terms of grading repertoire, the first step... In terms of grading repertoire, the first step is to play with accurate notes, rhythms, and observe the details in the score. Those that achieve into the high 80s or 90s are students who show artistic flair or superior interpretation. Without that love and excitement for a piece, it will be really difficult to get these qualities out from your students. That's why it's important to choose pieces that students can enjoy and be inspired by. Another thing to keep in mind is that the higher the grade level, the more detail the examiner will expect. At level 1, we do not expect perfect phrasing, amazing tone color, and things like that. However, at level 8 and up, we do look for these things in order to give a really high mark. Let's talk a little bit more about the repertoire selection. Another big part of that is the interpretation of the music. Some pieces are more straightforward in that they play themselves as long as you play the correct notes and play up to speed. I think of the Gigue in D major in the level 8 list A. It is a fairly straightforward piece. On the other hand, there are other pieces that are much more sophisticated, nuanced, and require a lot more maturity to play. The one that comes to my mind right away is the Chopin Mazurka in A minor in level 8. This piece is so tricky with the voicing, timing, and getting the style of the Mazurka just right. Does that mean we should avoid these pieces and only pick the straightforward ones? No, of course not. This goes back to considering our students and their strengths. I had one student who was really inspired by this piece, and while it took a lot of time and coaching, he did play it for his exam and scored very highly. Leanne, as an examiner, how do you go about grading pieces like that Chopin Mazurka? When there is such a broad range of interpretations, how should a teacher guide the student? I have heard so many different interpretations of the Mazurka as an examiner. As examiners, we understand that there is not just one right way to play these types of pieces. 
As long as the interpretation can be stylistically justified, then we can accept it, even if it may not be the way that we personally teach the piece. What are some things that would not make sense stylistically? In terms of the Chopin Mazurka, things like playing with no pedal, playing without balance between melody and accompaniment, and no flexibility in the timing. When in doubt, follow all of the markings on the score and the tempo suggestions in the book. But any experienced teacher should have a good grasp of the style of each composer in each era. So you've chosen repertoire for your students and you're on your way to polishing. The next step is to work towards memorization, another big part of the exams. Leanne, as an examiner, what are you noticing in terms of memorization? The main thing I'm noticing is that when a candidate has a memory lapse, it is often very difficult for them to recover. They often have to start over. I think it would really benefit our students if we train them on how to better deal with memory lapses, because they will happen to everyone at some point. Michelle, how do you train memorization with your students? Oh, thank you for asking this as it's one of my favorite topics. We need to make a separate episode on this, but as a summary, I tell my students that there are many parts to memorizing beyond just playing it over and over until the muscle memory kicks in. Memorizing music also includes elements such as what it sounds like, what it looks like on the keys, theoretical memory, and much more. So I help my students reinforce their memory by looking for musical patterns, finding chords or progressions they're familiar with, or even creating a story anything that will enrich the memory and engagement. Finally, I always make checkpoints in the score with them so that if they have a memory slip, they can always move on to the next checkpoint of the music instead of restarting from the beginning and hoping for the best. So the checkpoints could be the beginning of a new section or a phrase, a cadential point, a notable chord or dynamic emotional part of the music. We then practice being able to start at these different checkpoints. Those are great tips. Okay, let's move on to talk about the other elements of the exams that sometimes get neglected. Often I hear fantastic repertoire, but then the ear training or the technique is a little bit on the weaker side and it really does pull down the overall grade. These elements need just as much attention as repertoire. I completely agree. Musicianship skills like the oral and sight reading component of the exams are just as important. What do teachers need to know about the musicianship skills and how should they prepare their students? Sight reading has two parts, rhythm and playing. For the rhythm section, it is a requirement that the student shows both the beat and the rhythm in some way. Oftentimes, this element is missed. There are so many different ways you can do this. You can keep the beat with your foot and clap the rhythm with your hands, or you could show the beat with one hand and the rhythm with the other hand. Any way you do it is fine as long as you're showing both elements. Also, be sure to count in one measure of the beat before you start the rhythm. This requirement is a bit newer and came with the last syllabus update. It definitely makes the rhythm portion more challenging, but it is also a very valuable tool for your students to be able to do. This is a skill you definitely cannot cram at the last minute because it takes quite a bit of practice and coordination. Yes, I quickly learned that this takes a lot of practice. Now that I've started implementing it regularly with students, I have noticed it has really good benefits for their overall playing. So don't think of this skill as unimportant because it's only worth three marks in the exam. Work on this consistently with your students because it's going to improve their overall sense of pulse, which will improve every single element of the exam. I think many teachers may also be guilty of leaving sight reading preparation to the last minute. Teachers need to show their students how they can set themselves up for success when it comes to sight reading. This includes checking the key signature, time signature, rhythms, accidentals, dynamics, all of that. Yes, often I see candidates dive in unprepared. 
In a live exam, it is true sight reading, so they are given some time, often up to one minute, to look over the piece. Make sure your student knows exactly what to do in this time. Develop a routine with them. Also make sure that your student sets a reasonable and consistent pulse. I have my students find the quickest notes in the passage and use that as their guide to choose their pace. My routine with my students is clef, key, time. Those are the first things they need to check out before they look at the rest of the music. From there, take note of the general contours of the music, any repetitions of phrases or rhythms, any notes they can anchor on, and to tackle the tricky parts first, like large leaves or rhythmically difficult sections. I also remind them to always know where the hands are going from the last part of the first line to the first bar of the second line. Ear tests are another element that many teachers, myself included, are guilty of cramming at the last minute. How can we paste the ear training elements in a way that gradually builds the skills and gets them ready for the exam? Honestly, I don't think there are any hacks other than just good old practice every day in every lesson. I work with students using solfege and I start with that day one of their lessons and by the time they enter the RCM stream they have no problems practicing the singing and transposing of the playback melodies in solfege. I think that singing is the best and deepest way to develop oral skills. In terms of chords and intervals, I had them sing the intervals and chords aside from just pure identification. For those who have trouble, I'll provide songs that can help them identify the intervals or chords. If you start ear training early and incorporate it in little bite-sized chunks on its own or integrated in learning of their pieces, it's not as painful as cramming it weeks before the exam. Alright, let's go on to the next element, which is the etudes. The main difference between etudes and repertoire is that etudes focus on a specific technical challenge. If you look at the table of contents of any of the RCM etudes books, it even tells you what the specific technical challenge of that piece is. So when you're preparing your students, you need to make sure that they have good technical command and facility of that specific challenge. Leanne, you also mentioned that a lot of etudes you hear as an examiner, while they are technically proficient, are way under tempo. Yes, oftentimes the challenge of the piece is the speed itself. So even if a candidate plays with the accurate notes, rhythms, and good clarity, I cannot really give them a high mark if they're playing way under tempo. When choosing an etude with your student, make sure that they can achieve the suggested tempo as marked in the book. It's also a good reminder that etudes do not need to be played from memory, so no need to focus your efforts on memorizing these pieces. Alright, let's go on to technique. Now, I think most people know this, but all of the technique needs to be played from memory. If you use the book, we have to deduct 5 marks out of 12. Unfortunately, I've had to do this a couple of times because the candidates did not have their technique memorized. Oh no, that's so sad for those candidates. That's another good reminder that it is up to us, the teachers, to know the syllabus inside and out to make sure that we are preparing our students properly. So when it comes to technique, what are you looking for and what are some things that are less important? We want to see that you know all of the key areas, chord structures, and can play them with quick recall. Also, make sure that your students can play them at or beyond the required speeds. We also look for evenness of tone, rhythm, and clarity. So we look for an overall impression. Some things that we do not mark are fingering, believe it or not. We do not deduct marks for illogical finger patterns. We choose our grades based entirely off of the sound that we hear. That's not to say that good fingering and technique is not important, it definitely is. But it's interesting to know that it doesn't affect their grade. How do you prepare your students for the technical requirements? 
I typically go through each key with the student per week. So in one week, they'll practice everything in the B-flat major key, such as the scales, the chords, and arpeggios. We'll tackle any difficulty as it comes. When the exam time rolls along, we slowly begin quizzing and drilling multiple scales. I have found that if you keep up with the scales as part of their practice and lesson routine from the very beginning, it isn't a struggle getting it ready for exams. Alright, so we've covered each component of the exam. Now we need to talk about another really important element, preparing to deal with nerves and the exam setting. I think this is something that teachers need to spend a lot of time on so their students can have the best possible experience. I agree. Exams are nerve-wracking experiences for students, so it is very valuable to do mock exams with your students. This means that you pretend to be the examiner, go through the entire exam, and ask all of the different components. You can give your student a grade and write them a report too. Yes, this is so valuable, and I start doing these mock exams weekly about a month away from their exam. It gets the student used to playing through all the components back to back. It can also be valuable to perform the repertoire and etudes for other students or friends or family. Anything that gets your student used to playing under pressure. Another thing we can train our students to deal with is false starts or memory lapses. We don't want to put it in their mind that they're going to make mistakes, but rather we want to give them the tools to recover in the event that it does happen. Leanne, do you see a lot of exam candidates that have trouble with memory and false starts? Yes, it happens a lot and it makes me so sad for the student because I have been in that situation and I know how bad it feels. If your student is having trouble getting their piece started, they can do a few things. They can ask the examiner to go on to the next piece and then come back to that piece later. I had this situation in an exam recently. A candidate just could not get past the first few notes. I suggested we try another piece and then when we came back to the first piece, she played it perfectly. Often it's just a result of nerves. But we should make sure our students can advocate for themselves and ask if they can try another piece. Definitely. Preparing your students can start in multiple places throughout the piece, and not just the beginning is very empowering for them. That way they can continue forward if there is a lapse in memory. They have a safety net to rely on and it really quells their nerves and builds a sense of self-trust in their abilities. Yes, this is so important. Okay, last thing I want to talk about is etiquette. Exams should be treated like a performance and we need to educate our students about proper performance etiquette. Absolutely. I like to encourage my students to dress up a little bit. Of course, this is not mandatory and should not affect their grade, but it helps to make a good impression and show the examiner that you take this exam seriously. I agree. Also, do encourage your student to engage with the examiner in a positive and friendly way. Often I greet candidates and try to engage with them and I met with a blank stare or some cold responses. I understand this is probably a result of nerves, but we should remember that first impressions can make a difference. It creates positivity and builds a rapport that creates an overall better experience. These are great tips and I agree that sometimes we can overlook our students engaging with the examiner in a positive way. So let's talk a little bit about preparing for remote exams. This requires a few extra steps, but they are important in making sure that things go smoothly. It is definitely important that teachers do a sound check with their student. This means listening to them play via the device they will be using to do their exam, and that the camera is set to an appropriate angle. Yes, it is also a great idea to do a mock exam this way, so the candidate gets the full experience. Also, be sure to follow the suggested sound settings for Zoom. Make sure the original sound setting is turned on, or else the sound of the instrument will not come through clearly. Also, make sure your device is fully charged before your exam. If you're using a cell phone, turn it to do not disturb so there are no sounds 
or notifications interrupting the exam. Finally, when doing a remote exam, be sure to print out the sight reading and do not rely on a device to display it for you. There you have it, some tips and tricks to help your students ace their next exam. Remember that preparing for an exam is a marathon, not a sprint. Start working gradually on each element right when you start working on that level and give your students the time they need to build the skills. We hope you found this podcast helpful. Is there anything that we missed? Share your exam prep tips with us in the comments. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe for more great podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at teachmusically.com. Until next time, happy teaching!